Amen. Thank you, Jasenia and Raul. Just make sure uh, my PowerPoint is ready to roll here this morning. There we go. Well, so good to be with you again. Uh, we're going to continue reading in Ezekiel chapter 37. And our passage actually comes right after the one that was just read for us. Uh, but these two sections are certainly connected. Ezekiel chapter 37. And I'm going to be looking starting in verse 15. And these are the three things that we want to cover this morning. First of all, we're going to see that God gives Ezekiel a prophecy. And then after the prophecy is given, number two, we're going to see the promises that God brings to his people Israel through this prophecy. And then finally, we want to consider our participation. So let me just read here, starting in verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood, write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him, then take another stick of wood and write on it belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. Well, I thought I might as well uh, just act this out this morning. I've got a couple of sticks here. I've uh, written on them already. And I'm quite confident that Ezekiel would have used uh, duct tape, so I brought some of that as well. So we're going to join these two sticks together, as God said that uh, he should. This is not the good stuff, actually. We'll see how well it holds up. <clears throat> now, this wasn't the first time. How loud is that? Is that coming through good? I hope that's not hurting your ears. So this wasn't the first time that God told Ezekiel to act out a prophecy. Uh, so I don't know how weird this one sounds to you, but I can just imagine the people that knew Ezekiel, uh, uh, who were familiar with some of the prophecies and some of the strange things that he'd already done, when he starts walking around with uh, two sticks fastened together, I don't know how he fastened them, but I've used duct tape today. I'm sure that people were immediately wondering, okay, Ezekiel, so what, what's the message this time? And the reason for that is that uh, God had already told Ezekiel to, uh, to do some strange things, to act out some of his prophecies uh, with some object lessons. So if you go to chapter 4 of Ezekiel, you'll find God says to him, take a, take a piece of clay, and you're going to make a model of the city of Jerusalem, and then you're going to actually build siege works against that. So you see this uh, artist's impression of that. Uh, Ezekiel's there, he's building up the siege works against the city of Jerusalem, so he's playing. It's like child's play. He's, he's creating a scene that's depicting what's about to happen to the city of Jerusalem. And then um, he was to cook bread and, and as a sign of, uh, of what was going to happen to the city of Jerusalem and the difficulty that they would have in finding food during this time of siege. Uh, so uh, God told Ezekiel to make bread. Now, I, I've heard of this thing called Ezekiel bread. So I think actually if you go to chapter 4, uh, God gives Ezekiel these ingredients. And then he was to cook it over dung. So I, I hear Ezekiel bread is bad enough. If you had to cook it over dung, it would be even worse. But this is what God told Ezekiel to do. And as people saw him doing these strange things, they would say, well, what, what does this mean? And then Ezekiel was to lay down for a number of days and lay down beside this model of the city of Jerusalem and um, again, as a sign of what, was, of what God was going to do to the city of Jerusalem and the coming captivity and the, uh, the coming of the Babylonians against the city of Jerusalem. And then in chapter 5, we have this strange one. God tells Ezekiel, you've got to take a sword, shave off the hair of your head, shave off the hair of your beard, and then you're going to weigh out the, the hair, and you're going to burn some of the hair inside your, 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 your pretend city, and then you're going to scatter some of it outside of the city. And, 
all of this was very strange. But again, the whole point was people would come along and say, Ezekiel, what in the world are you doing? And he would give them God's message as they watched him play these things out. And then in chapter 12, there's another one. Um, God says to Ezekiel, I want you to pack for a journey. I, I want you to pack as though you're going into exile. Uh, so he does that. He packs his belongings. And then God tells him, I want you to dig through the wall. So here's the guy who's under siege or uh, he's captured in the city. Uh, and he digs through the city wall with his belongings in a, in a simple bag, uh, with his face covered. And again, people would say, Ezekiel, what are you doing? And he would give them God's message of the judgment that was about to fall on his people. So all of those things were pretty negative, actually, when you think about it. Uh, these things that he was acting out, it was all about God's judgment on, uh, on, on Judah, God's judgment on the city of Jerusalem and on his people. But then we come to this one in chapter 37. This one where he says, take two sticks and write on them, write on one Judah, write on another one Joseph. These representing, of course, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom, which uh, at the time was known as Israel. Uh, you might remember that under David, these two were one nation. But once David's son Solomon came into power, he ended up becoming uh, faithless to God and he worshipped idols. And then his son was just as bad or worse, Rehoboam. And so God divided the nation. There was the northern nation of Israel. There was the southern nation that was called Judah. And these two nations never came together again. In fact, they sometimes warred against each other. The northern kingdom was always, always unfaithful to God. And the southern kingdom often was. And in both cases, both of these nations, the north and the south, went into captivity. In fact, by the time that Ezekiel was prophesying, the, the northern kingdom had already been in captivity. They'd been captured by the Assyrians years before. And the Assyrians had taken them and, and scattered them throughout other Gentile regions and then repopulated their nation uh, with Gentile people. And essentially what they were doing as they did this was, was, was ruining uh, Israel as a, as a race or as a people, uh, just diluting them in, in terms of, uh, of their identity. That had already happened. That's why in the time of Jesus, these Samaritans who lived in that region that formerly had been the northern kingdom, they called them Samaritans and they despised them. They didn't consider them to be true Israelites. But listen to what God is saying here. Take these two sticks, join them together, and in verse 18, when your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand. That represents the northern kingdom. Notice what he says. And the Israelite tribes associated with him and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood and they will become one in my hand. So now we have a much more positive prophecy here that God gives to Ezekiel. And as people saw him walking around with his two sticks duct taped together, and they said, what does this mean, Ezekiel? What are you saying this time? He could give them this wonderful news of this prophecy of God's promise to bring the two nations into one again. Verse 20, hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on. And say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over, uh, over all of them. And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding. And I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will ha all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob the land where your ancestors live, they and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. 
and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Now this is why this is part of our end time series that we're calling Living Hope. Because some of the promises that are associated with Ezekiel's prophecy of these two sticks are still future. They certainly hadn't been fulfilled in the time of Ezekiel, uh, and I would certainly argue they haven't been fulfilled up to this time. But there's prophecies here that are so beautiful and so significant, primarily as we read about David sitting on the throne of Israel, ruling over this one reunited nation. And if you know the, the word of God, you know that this is a reference to Jesus Christ. You might remember when he was walking, I think it was near the, uh, um, the city of Jericho when Jesus was here on the earth, and there was a blind man, or two blind men, depending on the gospel that you're reading the story in. And, and they hear about Jesus walking by, and they'd heard stories about Jesus, and they begin to cry out to him for healing of their blindness, and in their crying out, they call him Son of David. Somehow they had come to believe that Jesus was not just uh, literally physically the son of David in terms of his lineage, but that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets and all the prophecies and all the promises that God had made to David and then to many other prophets as well. That there was an ultimate king who was going to come to Israel, a son of David who would rule in David's place. Not just for 40 years as David had, but for eternity, forever and ever. And so this is part of our Living Hope series. Let's look a little closer at these promises of God. Verse 21, he tells us that he's going to gather his people, the people of Israel, from out of the nations. Ezekiel here prophesying by this time, he was in captivity in Babylon. And he is prophesying to a people who were being taken into captivity. Of course, we know years later that there would be a return to the land. Israelites who'd come from the southern kingdom of Judah would be allowed to go back to the land and resettle the land. But of course, generations later, once again, they'd be exiled and removed from the land. But God says here, this is my promise to you. I'm going to regather you. I'm going to bring you out of the nations. And then the second promise, I'm going to bring you to your own land. And as we think of the promises that God had made to Israel and the covenant that God had made with Israel in the Old Testament, the land was such an important part of that, this promised land, the nation, the land uh, of the people of Israel. So he says it in verse 21. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And then in verse 25, they will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob. So there's this regathering of God's people back into the land of Israel. And then he explains how he's going to make these two nations one nation. We've seen that in verse 22. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. So there's this reunification that takes place, God bringing his exiled people into one nation again. And then we read about this great king in verse 22. One king over all of them. And verse 24, my servant David will be king over them. And verse 25, uh, they will live in the land I gave to my servant, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. This, of course, isn't uh, uh, 
a reference to David being somehow resurrected. This is a reference to his son, to Christ. That's why the New Testament makes such a big deal about how Jesus comes from the lineage of David so that he himself would be the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. And then notice these wonderful words about how the morality of Israel were once, will once and for all be changed. They will no longer worship idols. They will no longer rebel against their God. Verse 23 says they will no longer defile themselves uh, with idols and vile images or with any offenses. And notice what it says, I will save them. Uh, you, you'll, you'll notice if you think about the words that we're reading here, this actually sounds like what we know as believers here in the New Testament. How is it that God transforms a life? It's because he saves us, ironically, or not ironically, through the same king, the one that we know as our savior, the one that we've just remembered in communion. He is the one who saves us. He saves us from all of our offenses. He saves us from all of our sinful backsliding. And through the blood of Jesus, we find that, that, that we are cleansed from them all. These are the promises that God now is making to his own people. Notice verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. This is the rescue of God. He, he's going to save his people. He's going to transform his people. He's going to bring them into a covenant which will be unbreakable. And he will make them capable of keeping their side of the covenant they've never never been able to do it before so here's the salvation of god for his people transforming redeeming and then these wonderful words about being the people of god they will be notice the end of verse 23 they will be my people and i will be their god we've talked about this already this morning this idea that that this is this is god's desire for us to be his people, we gather as the church, as the people of God, celebrating this incredible news that we have become the people of God. That we can say these same words, that we are his and he is mine. That, that he is our God. These words are repeated throughout scripture. Are there any more wonderful words than this? And for the people of Israel, now in exile, the northern kingdom scattered and and, and mingled with all the nations of the world, the southern kingdom of Judah in captivity in Babylon. What a promise. A time was coming when these words could be said and said truly. See them again in verse 26, this idea of God's sanctuary. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place, verse 27, will be with them. I will be their God. See, now it's reversed. I will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Wonderful words of promise. And then notice this one, forever. Several times over in this passage, uh, we see that word forever. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. This is God's promise to his people of Israel. Well, we need to consider what it means. And not only what it means, but what does it mean for us, if anything? Ezekiel is a Jewish man prophesying to the Jewish people. And God is making these promises to the Jewish people, and he's using Jewish language, describing them as the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, describing how he's going to bring them back to the land. Does this have anything to do with us? Now, these are challenging things. When does this happen? Clearly, it's still future. We, we don't see Israel even today, and it's remarkable that uh, the nation of Israel is in their land, that they that God has brought them back to the land as a nation. But other than that, nothing in this prophecy has been fulfilled for them. They have not found salvation in their true Messiah. They, they have not been freed from their backsliding and their sin. 
we're grateful for the work of One for Israel. And someone posted recently on the WBC uh, webpage about a recent update that One for Israel is being sued to, to remove their YouTube videos because of the tremendous uh, success and power that they've had in winning souls to the Messiah, Jesus. It's, it's, it's incredible. But as a nation, as a nation, Israel has not been saved. As a nation, they have not been brought to this place where their backsliding is over, where they've been cleansed, where they no longer worship their idols or their false beliefs. Much of this prophecy is, is unfulfilled. When will it be fulfilled? Some would say, well, this, this is a prophecy that's speaking of a, a, a thousand-year millennial kingdom. Could be. But we notice the language here of forever. There is an eternal sense here in terms of the fulfillment of these things, the promises that God has made, not merely a, a temporal period of time, but a forever period of time. That's so clear here. We see Jesus ruling. That means that he would have to come back to this earth. That's obviously a reference to his second coming. This couldn't be fulfilled until Jesus comes again and returns to the world and returns to the land of Israel and sits on a throne of authority still future and what does it have to do with us is there any reason for us to even study this I want you to notice verse 28 this is a simple reference to the nations it says in verse 28 the nations will know that I the Lord make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. A simple reference to the nations, that the nations would recognize through God's dealing with his people that God is the true God, that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, and that God has a people. But I want you to notice another verse. Ten chapters later, Ezekiel 47 and if you read these uh, intermediary uh, chapters, you'll find that God is describing, Ezekiel's describing a, a sanctuary, a temple. He's describing a priesthood. He's describing sacrifices, which I, I, I don't know how to fit all of that in. I, as I've said before, there's so much mystery in the midst of the certainty. But this verse, as he's describing the allotment of the land of Israel to the tribes of Israel, to the people of Israel. It's reminiscent to the time of Joshua when they'd conquered large portions of the promised land and the land was being divided up and given to the various tribes. And Ezekiel's describing the very same thing here for, for this future time. <clears throat> and notice what he says. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the foreigners residing among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Now this may not seem significant to you, but it's, it's reminiscent of other parts of the Old Testament that remind us that Israel at its essence, the purpose that God had for his people of Israel, always always had this intent of being a light to the nations. Now you can say, well, that doesn't seem very clear in the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, through the nation of Israel coming from Abraham's offspring. There would be a blessing to the whole world through them. I love Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. A hymn of the nation of Israel. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. That's, that's remarkable to me. I, I get the sense that even the apostles of Christ <clears throat> in the early days of the church struggled tremendously to lift their gaze beyond themselves and beyond Israel and to see God's intent, his heart for salvation to come through Israel, through Christ, 
not just to the people of Israel, but to all the nations. You remember that before, before God could even convince Peter to go to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile man, that he literally had to give Peter a supernatural vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with these various animals. And finally, Peter was convinced, recognizing this is a supernatural word from God. He goes to the home of Cornelius and to his amazement, this Gentile and his family are saved as they hear about Jesus. It seems that even Peter, even the apostles struggled to do what Jesus had said. Remember what he had said before he left? He said, you're going to start in Jerusalem, you're going to go to Judea, you're going to go to Samaria, and you're going to go to the ends of the earth. It's almost like it took Paul, the salvation of Saul, who became Paul, and his deep passion to take the gospel throughout the world. It's almost like God used him to open the eyes of, of the very apostles of Jesus to show them his heart for the nations. This is seen in other parts of the Old Testament. I love stories like Joshua chapter 2 where this prostitute named Rahab who lived in the city of Jericho who uh, shelters the spies of Israel and because of her faith, her allegiance to the God of Israel and to them as a people, she's rescued when the walls of Jericho fall. She and her family are brought not just into the nation of Israel, not just absorbed as foreigners who, who become part of the nation, but ultimately Rahab is found in the lineage of Jesus. Don't you find that amazing? We find these... Uh, these lists of names, the lineages in, in, in Matthew and Luke, and we find this boring. Why, why are they all these? I, I, don't, I don't get the point of all these names. Why do we need to know who, who was who and who had who? And, but there we find the name Rahab. Not just brought into the nation of Israel, brought into the very line of Christ. Same thing with Ruth. Ruth, who was from Moab. Moab, a place where God says, no Moabites should ever be part of my people and yet in his grace Ruth is redeemed by Boaz and she not only becomes part of the nation of Israel she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus don't you see the reason for that God is showing his heart that even his son who would take on this human form that human form would come from a line of people yeah mostly Jewish people but he would include the nations even in the lineage of Christ. Isaiah prophesied, I think we're prophesying here of Christ, the servant of God. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Israel, as the people of God, was not meant to be an exclusive people who just got to receive all the blessings of God and hoard them to themselves. The point of Israel was God reveals himself to a nation, God blesses that nation, and as that blessing and as that knowledge and as his word permeates through that nation out into the other nations, that those other nations will come and long to worship and long to obey the God of Israel. They were meant to be a missionary nation. And of course, Israel failed over and over. Until Jesus came, the servant that Isaiah is referring to here, who came to be the Messiah of Israel, but ultimately to be the light of the Gentiles. And so we come to the New Testament. And we find some astounding things are said about Israel and the followers of Christ. Notice the words of Paul here in Galatians 6, neither circumcision, meaning to be Israelite, to be Jewish, nor uncircumcision, meaning to be Gentile, neither means anything, he says. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. Do you see what he's saying? The true Israel of God is made up of, yes, some genuine national Jews who've come to faith in Christ, who've received this new creation in Christ, 
as well as Gentiles who like Ruth and Rahab and others get amalgamated into this people of God, this Israel, through faith in Christ, through the gospel. This is the Israel of God. This is a longer passage, but I want to see it. I hope you can perhaps see it. It's from Ephesians 2, 11 to 19. Again, Paul writing, he says, You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision or Jewish people, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Not just separate from Christ, but excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. See, there's two great dangers that we, we, we have before us when we study passages like this. One is that we say, as some do, some, in fact, many godly theologians believe, that God's promises to Israel are simply fulfilled in the church. That in terms of national Israel, Israel as a people, there really is no future. The church is the replacement, the, 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 the fulfillment of whatever God promised to Israel. And I would argue that's wrong based on what we're seeing here. That's not true. But it's also wrong for us to compartmentalize and say, well, God still has his people Israel and they're over here. And then there's those of us who've been saved through the gospel and we're over here and not sure how it's all going to work out in heaven, but we're separate. Two distinct entities. And that's not the teaching of the Bible either. That somehow there's this blending of the nation of Israel and the people of God saved through the gospel of Christ. You can read about that in Romans chapter 11 where Israel is described as an olive tree and uh, us Gentiles who've, who've been saved through Jesus Christ, Paul, Paul describes us as being grafted into that tree. The blending of the two. Paul calls this a mystery. Ephesians 3. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And then notice the blending here. Revelation 21 described <clears throat> as the city of God coming down out of heaven. It's called, the city is called the bride of Christ, which we tend to think of as the church. But, but as we read of the city, we read of it having high walls with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then we read about the wall of the city having 12 foundations. And on those foundations were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The people of God are this wonderful blending of the nation of Israel and the followers of Jesus. And we find in this passage, of course, that the remnant of Israel, those who will ultimately make up the Israel of God, are Jewish people who've trusted in Christ. It's not enough to be an ethnic Jew or to live in the land. What, 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 what makes them the remnant that God saves, the remnant of Israel that he saves, is their faith in Christ. And they're finding new life in Christ through the gospel. That's why the work of One for Israel is so precious. Because through their witness, ethnic Jews are being saved who otherwise would be lost for eternity. And we together with them, through this same King, this same Shepherd King, Jesus, we get to be part of the people of God. And in the end of the book, 
echoing the words of Ezekiel. Describing our eternal condition and state. We hear this, look, God's dwelling is now among the people. You can hear the echoes of Ezekiel's words. He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is why it matters to us. Because as we get saved, as we follow Christ, all who follow Jesus today, we are being grafted into Israel, the people of God. And we will get to experience all that God promises to His people Israel through Ezekiel because He's making all of us together His people. My concern for us as I close, I want to leave us with this one challenge. Paul calls this a mystery, this idea that God's intent wasn't just to have Israel and forget about the Gentiles. God's intent was always for Israel to be a missionary nation, for Israel to be used of God to save the Gentiles, for the two to become one. Paul calls that a mystery. And one of the sad parts of the history of Israel was that they they were exclusive. They didn't care about the nations. They didn't seek to reach the nations. In a sense, the history of Israel is the story of Jonah, where God sends him to Nineveh and he says, I'm not going. And we have this great danger, though we have the tremendous privilege of being the people of God, that we miss the missionary nature of our calling. That it's not just about me and Jesus. It's not just about me and my salvation. It's not just about me and my security. And and I have a mansion in glory. But to be the people of God has always meant that we are the missionaries of God. And that there's others who need to be taped to the stick with us. There's others, there's a whole world of people out there who need to hear the good news, who need to be brought into relationship with God, who need those words to be true of them. They will be His people. He will be their God. That is our privilege. We get to go out this week and live amongst our co-workers and our classmates and our neighbors Maybe some of it's on Zoom. But we get to be witnesses of this great story. And we get to be the people who bring good news. To invite people in to this mystery, to this grand story, to this great narrative. That God has always wanted a people. And that they can have a place with us. May it be true of us. That in the days of our lives... We never lose sight of our calling. We're not just the people of God. We are the missionaries of God. May we shine as a light. We're going to sing, and then I'll come back and pray in closing. When we sing these next two songs, um, I just I pray that this week for myself and for all of us that the name of Jesus would be on the tip of our tongues this week as we go into the world. Whatever we are doing, we all are doing different things, but I just I pray that even these songs would just be going through your mind um, this week, and then that would bring Jesus first and foremost, and that we would, as Gary said, be missionaries and just want to share Him, and that. Um, What a beautiful name Jesus is. You were the word at the beginning, one with God the Lord most high. Your hidden glory. beautiful name it is so 
beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. Didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus,
and time is in his hands beginning at the end beginning at the end the god had three salvation that is offered through Christ that you are one of God's people that he is your God I just trust that if if you're not sure if that's true that you'll you'll make sure that it is you'll talk to someone if need be you'll you'll simply repent of sin and reach out to Christ by faith and ask that he would save you and if you are saved if you are one of God's people uh, I pray that our hearts would be missionary hearts that we would want to see others come to know God as well so that they could say yes we are the people of God he is my God may be true of us God we thank you for the things we've read today in your word give us understanding Lord of things that are tricky hard to understand but Lord we just want to honor your word we want to honor your good news and Lord we just thank you so much that through Christ we have salvation offered to us Thank you for a day that's coming when he will rule this world as king. And for all eternity, he will be the good shepherd of his people. Thank you for the day that's coming when your sanctuary will be in the midst of your people, when we will see you face to face. 
Oh Lord, would you give us hearts to take this good news to so many around us who are lost and hurting, who are outside of your grace. Help us, Lord, to bring the news that can bring them in. Would you give us strength and boldness and wisdom to do that this very week? We want to do it for your honor and glory, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to join on Zoom, uh, I will be there shortly. May God be with you in the week ahead.